What's up, y'all? It's Zach with Living Corporate. And if you didn't know, because every week there's a new listener, right? Every day there's someone discovering Living Corporate. So I'm going to just let everybody know. And then for those who've been rocking with us for a while, I'm going to remind y'all to Living Corporate is a digital media network. And we exist to center and amplify black and brown people at work. That's what we do. Okay. We are the voice of the people. We're not really here to promote corporations or protect them or be some type of like, I don't know, corporate reputational launder laundering service. Like that's not what we do. Right. When we have brands on to talk about black and brown people at work, uh, when we have executives, activists, elected officials, public servants, influencers, artists, etc., we have any of these types of people on. We're going to be centering and amplifying black and brown experiences. And if that brand happens to do that work and really be authentic in that space, then we will speak to them. And you can best believe that when they come on this stage, on this platform, we're not pulling any punches. We're having real conversations. You know what I'm saying? Like that is what Living Corporate is all about. I'm so excited about where Living Corporate is. I'm excited about this episode. You're about to hear this conversation you're about to hear. Um, And, you know, I just want you to know that I love you. I appreciate you. Make sure that you follow Living Corporate everywhere we exist. You know what I'm saying? Just type in, just Google Living Corporate. I ain't about to rattle off all the social media handles. You know what I mean? Like if you just go on Google or whatever search engine you use, because that's not an ad either. Um, (laughs) Whatever you use, uh, Ask Jeeves, Bing, Yahoo. I don't know what Microsoft Edge. Whatever you're using, just type in Living Corporate and we're going to pop up, right? Now, look, what you're listening to is Real Talk Tuesdays. You're listening to um, one show that's part of a larger network, right? And so what you're going to, if you check us out, you look at our website, living-corporate-please-say-the-dash.com, you'll see that we actually have a network of shows, right? Uh, all focused on centering and amplifying black and brown folks at work with different lenses, right? So shout out to the entire team. Um, as our shows continue to come, you will hear about it, but make sure you plug in so you can just stay in tune. That way you don't have to try to catch up. You can just be caught up as you catching on. You know what I'm saying? Now, um, with that being said, I'm excited about this conversation you're about to hear. I want you to pay attention and make sure that you click the links in the show notes to learn more about what we're doing and where we're going. I'll see you soon. Dr. Wingfield, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thanks for having me. Yo, thanks for being here. Listen, you are a lot of different things. You know what I'm saying? Like you're a professor, you're a you're an educator, speaker, consultant, author. Like, where did all this come from? Like what like why like why did you choose this domain for your career path? Yeah, I've always been interested in these questions related to to race and work. I guess to me, they present a bit of a paradox because we know that we spend a lot of one, we spend a lot of time at work in the first place and work has this reputation and our economy has this reputation of being the space where you do your best work, you work hard, you're going to get ahead and you're going to achieve. And that's just a fair level playing field. But we also know there's a lot of data that suggests otherwise, that it's not quite as fair as we think and that there are a lot of disparities in who achieves and who achieves advances and who doesn't. And so I've always been interested in the question of how we can explain that disparity and why we have this image of work as being so meritocratic when we also know that black workers are less likely to advance and more likely to stall out and face substantial discrimination in the workplace at large. You know, to your point, like it's while the older you get, you realize like 
how much time we really spend at work. Like I was talking to my mom, it's like, man, like you spend the majority of your life at work, and then you spend the next amount, yep. the next large amount of your time sleep. And then, like people consider it a balanced <laughs> yeah. life. If the third thing is family and friends, and then loved ones, right? I mean, but you look up and really like your life be gone. You know what I mean? Just working right. all the right. time. Now you, you know, you talk about like right. this intersection of race and work. I'm curious, like, do you ever talk to people who feel like uh, that race talking about race at work is old hat, and that it's more than that? That diversity and inclusion isn't just about race. Um, I ask because it's funny. So like living corporate, we've been around for like five years, right? And when I'm having different networking calls or sales calls, and I put like, now, nah, Dr. Winfield, I didn't send you the deck because that wasn't, you know what I'm saying, the context of this this meeting. But we have a whole info deck of like all these brands that we've worked with and people that we've interviewed. And people, when they see me, the first thing they say is, do y'all just talk about black people? Or do you, is it more than that? Right. So I don't think people realize how like insidiously racist and insulting that is. Um, but I'm curious, like, what do you do to navigate the pushback? I would imagine you get if you don't get it, then correct me around people saying, why are you focused on race? <laughs> why aren't you focused on these other things? Yeah, well, the good thing about being a social scientist is that we have a wealth of data at our disposal. And to me, that's really what motivates a lot of the questions that I ask and a lot of the responses that I give when people raise those questions. And one of the things that is indisputable, if you look at the data, is that we do see the ongoing existence of racial discrimination in the workplace. We do see ongoing disparities where Black workers are underrepresented in management positions and leadership positions and certainly in executive roles. That is the case whether we are talking about the tech industry, the corporate sector, government, academia, where I work, those underrepresentations are persistent and they are prevalent across a variety of different organizations and a variety of different industries. So to me, it just seems necessary to keep asking these questions and trying to understand better why this persists. It's not a thing that it doesn't make sense to, it's not a thing that it makes sense to ignore because it's a real part of our society. So the questions to me are why and what can we do about it? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, like, you know, you saw with the murder of George Floyd, we saw like this, like influx of new DEI practitioners. We saw, um, we saw folks really, um, treating racism or white and, and using terms like white supremacy, and white supremacy culture, you know, supporting black people at that time was really in, in vogue. Right. And now we're seeing, um, we're seeing a, a return to more of a race, neutral uh, view and an emphasis on gender and other types of diversity. Um, despite that, there's numbers that would suggest that black and brown people, um, that frankly all marginalized people are worse off right now in this economy than they were in 2020 or at the height of like all this DEI effort. And you would imagine with all the book clubs, podcast studies, that there would have been some progress, but it would look like there isn't. Like, I'm curious, considering this is your realm of study and, you know, we're going to talk about your book in a little bit. Like, I'm curious to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. So for one thing, it's certainly accurate that we've seen um, a reversal from a lot of the public 
overt statements that many companies were making in 2020. I'm sure you remember how common it was to seeing companies blocking out their Instagram squares and saying how they oppose systemic racism and they were devoting X number of billions of dollars to addressing and fighting it. We've seen a lot of that walked back over the last few years from a corporate standpoint and in terms of just a cultural shift in terms of legislation and Supreme Court decisions moving further away from endorsing these efforts to try to address uh, systemic inequalities and long-going, long, excuse me, ongoing long-term racial inequality. But I'm in some ways not super shocked by that, just because if, I think if you take a long-term view of American history, one thing we also know is that every moment of racial progress has also been met and followed by backlash. We can talk about the Civil War being incredibly significant in terms of ending slavery, but then we also see Reconstruction following the Civil War, and then that being followed by Jim Crow segregation uh, in many places throughout the U.S. We can talk about the modern civil rights movement in the 1950s being something that certainly advanced uh, explicit racial equity through legislation, but also seeing that being followed up by mass incarceration, uh, the dearth of work in urban environments and predominantly Black concentrated areas. So in that context, it's not so shocking to me that we'd see this enormous movement for racial justice, the largest one in the history of the country, followed up by backlash and the efforts to try to undermine the progress that was being made. You know, it's interesting, too, because like even with all that, with like with all of the the push for progress and organization on uh, justice and, and these pieces that there's this uh, we still see the same challenges right in terms of there's only a scant few of black and brown people in senior executive leadership positions that most roles and careers stall out at that i mean i'm honestly like a black mid-level manager is like like you 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 celebrate it like you like you you got in the C-suite because you're typically not getting above director. Like it's very rare to see a bunch of black and brown VPs or heads of X, Y, and Z at like Fortune 1000 companies. Um, even still, like we all clamor to celebrate like the handful of people that that white folks allow to come into those spaces every few years, which is annoying to me. But all that being said, uh, <laughs> I feel like we're at a place where. Like we can talk about like your book because it's a really good segue into the title of your book, Gray Areas. Why and where did you come up with the title of this book, Gray Areas? Yeah. So when I talk about gray areas in the book, what I am talking about are the parts of work that are related to our jobs, but not necessarily fundamental to how we are doing the work of our jobs. So my job, I'm a college professor. My job requires research, teaching, service, sometimes more service than I really want to be doing. <laughs> but that's basically what my job constitutes. But that is not all that my job encompasses. I also have to factor in uh, how I form connections that allow me to move into certain positions if I want to be hired. I also have to think about the organizational culture at my workplace and what that means for how I comport myself at work. There's also the issue of advancement and how uh, there are opportunities to move ahead depending on what my opportunities for advancement look like in terms of my relationships with other colleagues. And so those are the gray areas of work, the social, the cultural, the relational parts of how we work, how we navigate jobs, how we navigate uh, different uh, opportunities. 
But those are also the areas that aren't really quite so regulated. And those are the areas where we see more opportunities for racial inequalities to persist. So by drawing attention to that and titling the book this way, my hope is to highlight for people the aspects of work that they may not necessarily have at top of mind. Uh, We don't live in an environment in a society anymore where legally you can explicitly openly discriminate. We aren't still in this era where there are whites only need apply signs. But as I mentioned before, that also doesn't mean that we've moved to an era where we are no longer seeing racial inequality in workplaces. And I really wanted to think about why and identifying this process and these examples of gray areas, I think, really shed some light on why we see these disparities persist. So can you give me like when you saw you you looked at these gray areas to understand the why, like what are like the top three whys? Yeah. So when it comes to hiring, we see a lot of hiring, I consider a gray area because of the way that it's driven by social relationships. And so we see a lot of inequalities persist in hiring because uh, the social dynamics mean that most people find jobs through their existing networks and connections. But we also know that our networks and connections are very racially homogenous. So when we rely on networks and existing connections to offer people opportunities for work and for employment, that means that Black workers are already starting off at a disadvantage. When it comes to organizational culture, we also know that many jobs and most cultures were not constructed or built with Black workers in mind. And many organizations establish cultures that reflect that they are not really uh, thinking about the experiences that Black workers may have uh, in these organizational spaces. So this emphasis on colorblindness and this uh, determination to advance a colorblind narrative in many organizations uh, contributes to some of the challenges that Black workers face fitting in and adapting to those spaces. And finally, when it comes to advancement and opportunities for moving ahead, these are very heavily relationally driven. Uh, advancement often rests on opportunities to be have face time with a sponsor or with a mentor or someone who's willing to advocate for you. But again, we also know that for many Black workers, they are less likely to have relationships with supervisors. They report the most distance from those who are their managers. So this aspect of how we work, again, is still contributing to racial inequality because of the embedded aspects of relational dynamics that are built into how we are advancing. It's interesting because like, you said something there. I just and I want to, I want to slow down. I want to back up for a second. A lot of these environments you said are not really built for, for black and brown folks in mind anyway. Will they ever be built? Like, will they ever be rebuilt or designed by like? So it's like because at a certain point, I'll say this, Doctor Wingfield. Like, I just ask myself, like, what are we doing all this for? Right? Like. So like some of it is like, okay, we write, okay, we write these books. Now look, at the same we live in a capitalist society. So if people are gonna buy something, go ahead and do it, you know what I'm saying? But at a certain point, it's almost like <laughs> we're just like doing a lot of work to like examine and diagnose a problem that we a sickness that we already are well acquainted with. Like, do you see any real long term value in continuing to have these conversations? And I mean I say that as a platform and a network and a company that has these conversations like every day. Uh, but I, but I ask you because you're so well acquainted in the research of the space. Like what is the, what's the point at this point? Like, what are we doing? What are we actually trying to solve? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. For me, I, I think part of what you're asking is uh, what, what are the objectives here, right? What do we see as the progress? If there is any, what is the end goal and what results do we expect to, to have happen? And I think one of the ways that I talk about 
one of the things that I mentioned in the conclusion of the book is that I think in many ways we are at another one of our major historical tipping points in U.S. society. And the reason that I say that is that, again, uh, we've been at these points before where the U.S. was at a crossroads and we had an opportunity to decide which direction we were going to go in. We are now at a place where uh, there are increasingly different demographics in the U.S. Populations of people of color are growing in America. Uh, our organizations and our workplaces don't yet reflect that. But it's hard for me to figure out and to understand how we remain poised to be a multiracial democracy if our organizations do not reflect the population that they serve or the populations that they serve. So to me, this becomes, I don't know if I'll say existential crisis level quite yet, but it does become really foundational in terms of thinking about how the major companies that power our global economy are going to move forward if they cannot reach and incorporate the talent that is part of the labor force. And if that talent is multiracial, which it is, to me, that necessitates the importance of these companies rethinking a lot of things that they have taken for granted and changing some of their organizational practices to reflect that. So you're absolutely right. I mean, like when I like the like the main thing, like objectively and I look at is like, OK, why does this work? Why is this work always going to be relevant? is, hey, if you want to survive, like just pessimistically, right? Like forget the humanity of black and brown people or queer people or older people or whatever. Like we're all just cogs in this machine, bro. But let's just say you, like, let's say we use that. Great. The The cogs are fundamentally going to change. And so either your machine has to adapt or the cogs are going to go into some new machine. You know what I'm saying? Because yeah. your machine ain't going to work like it was you right. know so right. <laughs> I, I i agree with you i agree with you i i think i think it's tough right because i mean let's just talk about like return to return to office like right so like despite all of the like research and like analytics and like all these things to show that remote work is beneficial to employees and their wellness, and then by direct relation, correlation, their production and engagement and retention. The CEOs, I mean, I just saw Roblox issuing an ultimatum talking about you got to come back in July, which is obviously them just trying to cut fat, right? Because why would you give me that that big of a, you know, you giving me an eight, <laughs> what, nine month, nine month heads up that you're going to cut my job? Uh, so, like, what are you talking about? But like, but like, you see all these, like, despite that people are like, no, no, you still going to come. No, you're going to come to work on time oh, up here. I'm going to watch you. And so it's just like, I struggle to, I'm, I'm struggling to figure out like, what do you think the breaking point is going to be for these executive leaders who are overwhelmingly white men to actually change? Cause like we've seen instances, right. Of like white male driven institutions just go down with the ship in the spirit of just ego and pride and so like what do you think is actually going to be the 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 thing that makes them go actually we got to do something different yeah that's a great question and i think your example of uh remote work is a really useful one of illustrating what i was describing before in terms of how we work not necessarily adapting to and fitting the way that our workers and our changing workplaces uh, really demand and want changes. Interestingly, I think one of the things that may matter for companies in terms of uh, making these shifts 
will probably be market demand and the bottom line. I mean, companies are companies, like you said, they aren't necessarily motivated by what some of us might think is the right thing, but we <laughs> we know that they'll always respond to financial incentive and they will always respond to profit margins, right? So one thing that I do think about is whether or not as companies see that their competitive advantages start to fail by being unable to meet the needs of a rapidly diversifying workforce, if eventually that becomes the wake-up call that some company leaders need in order to start reconsidering what they are doing and shifting to become more competitive and to retain their competitive advantage. Um, yeah, I can't say that I necessarily think that it will just be um, a moment of, uh, you know, as, much as, as much as I like to assign readings as a professor and <laughs> give people reading lists, I'm not sure that I think it will necessarily be a function of just reading something that uh, speaks to the someone's moral center. But I do think, again, uh, from a leadership standpoint and from a company and CEO standpoint, uh, bottom lines matter, profit margins matter, dollar signs matter. And again, it's just hard for me to see how companies maintain a competitive advantage if they continue to operate organizations that are not built to serve a multiracial workforce that is only becoming more diverse. So Dr. Winfrey, I got another question for you. All right. So okay. now I remember when, well, I don't remember because I wasn't alive, but I do remember reading it in a book that, um, like during segregation um, and like pools were segregated. Right. And so they would have a pool, all the, all the niggas in there swimming and you take the black people out. Then you drain the pool. Then you clean the pool. Then you put the water back in there. Then you put the tablets back in there. Then the white people come in the pool. Okay. So, I, that I use that example. I think about the example a lot. I think I want to say I got it from actually from from Bomani Jones. Um, so shout out to Bomani Jones. But the idea of when people say people only care about the bottom line, it's like, well, like financially, it would have been more prudent. First of all, desegregation would have been more financially prudent. But then, like, let's just say you keep everything segregated. Tons of money to drain those thousands of gallons out that pool and to spend the chlorine. So. And I say I ask this question not just because of your expertise in like the space of diversity, but you're a whole professor and your background, your PhD, your doctorate is in sociology. So, so I give that example to ask this: What do you believe is the intersection um, of folks? Uh, of I'm sorry, of what do you believe the intersection is between financial reward and upholding of power? Because I don't know if all institutions only care about just making money because if people only cared about just making money, I think that we would see things a little like things would just look a little different. So like, I'd love like, and if you like, nah, Zach actually as a, as a PhD in this space, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm about to check you. Feel free to do so. <laughs> but I want to understand your perspective on that. I, I think that power because power and power and, um and, and capital um, or, and, or immediate capital uh, generation, I don't believe are always hand in hand, but I'd love to hear your perspective on that. 
Yeah. So I'm, I'm not going to check you and say that I think that you're completely wrong. I think that you're making a great point. There is a lot of what we would call irrationality to racial segregation, racial segregation and discrimination. It's extraordinarily wasteful. There's a study from the San Francisco Federal Reserve Board that I saw a few years ago that showed that eliminating racial and gender inequality in the workplace could boost the U.S. economy by two trillion dollars. Not million, not billion, two trillion dollars numbers that are almost too large to really conceptualize it's staggering right That's but that gives crazy. us some insight into right <laughs> exactly exactly and that gives us some insights into just how much gets wasted with systemic ongoing racial and gender discrimination it is economically wasteful it is wasteful in the sense of human capital that gets wasteful because we are not allowing people to maximize their potential and contribute fully to our various economic social political systems and so forth. So I think you're right that to point out that uh, there's irrationality to racial inequality in terms of how much it wastes, but there also is uh, some benefit and gain what sociologist W.B. Du Bois would have called the wages of whiteness that accompany racial inequality as well. And there are some benefits to maintaining racial inequality that are not necessarily material. But I still think when I talk about uh, companies being driven by the bottom line and the profit margin, I should be more specific. And I don't know that I necessarily think that there will be kind of this ongoing broad wave across the board of multiple all companies or even most companies making this shift. But I do think that we live in a highly stratified uh, society and one where there's a lot of inequality even between companies. And I think that for a few major dominant uh, really impactful companies on the global stage to move a shift in this to make a shift in this direction would really have enormous implications and fallout, right? So just to be a little more specific than I plan to. I mean, imagine if you had companies like Amazon, like Google, like these are <laughs> these are major companies that are driving the global economy. Those companies committing to eradicating racial and gender inequality internally and devoting resources to that and documenting using some of the evidence-based strategies that we know actually make a difference in minimizing racial inequality in workplaces. To me, that's major and significant in ways that would have a much more far-reaching effect than, say, your average uh, independent business or your small mom-and-pop-owned bookstore, right? And I'm not shading those types of smaller independent businesses, but it just is a fact that those global mega corporations have a certain level of gravitas and influence that really means that what they do is going to matter and it's going to, to take note. So I, I, all that is to say that I think that you're right that we can't always expect that profit margins and economic interests are going to uh, outweigh uh, motivations for racial inequality. But I think that some companies that are big enough and impactful enough and significant enough to be real leaders in that space could potentially make a difference were they to commit to this and to do so in ways that reflect the strategies that we know can work. Yeah. What's interesting about what you said is like you said, like what you're, what I believe you're speaking to is like, structures and policies and procedures and like how to actually work and not necessarily like a bunch of performative stuff or like putting black lives matter on your baby right. face, you know, stuff like that. Okay. Receive. Right. So, so in your book, in your book, um, you, you talk about these like seven, you, you talk about this work in this gray area space as like, you, you, you communicate it through like personas, which I really love. Right. I love like the idea because personas to me is, 
it's it's real. It, beca- it becomes less theoretical because you're framing it through like a lived experience. Um, can we talk a little bit about like these different types of employees, right? You have like, and I and I really want to talk about, and because there's seven of them, and I don't, and we ain't got time to b- bust down all seven, but I do <laughs> want to talk about Alex, a worker in the gig economy. Like, talk to me about Alex and like why you decided to highlight or make one of the personas like a gig economy and how they fit into this larger concept of gray areas. Yeah, that's a great question. So I really wanted to include someone who was doing a lot of work in the gig economy because it really has been impactful in shifting how we work and how we think about work. Even if you've never worked in the gig economy, chances are you've been in an Uber, you've been in a Lyft, you've ordered some food from DoorDash. Most of us have some connection to gig work at this this point in our lives, even if we have not done it directly. And it really represents a way that our economy has shifted because of that. Um, I also wanted to make sure that I was talking with companies or having some representation from someone who was connected to these tech spaces, because again, this tech industry, the tech industry is enormous. It's really shifting so many aspects of how we live. And I wanted to think about how as an industry that often posits itself as being very forward thinking and, um, Uh, willing to break the rules and willing to change aspects of how we work and live and think, I wanted to consider what that meant for workers who were connected to that industry. Alex is an interesting story because as someone who drives for Uber Eats, she's not an employee of Uber Eats. And that might seem like a distinction without a difference, but it really matters a lot. And it matters a lot because not being an employee means that she is not covered by employee benefits. She's not entitled to any type of particular leave or federal protections that are associated with being an employee of a company. It means she is a contractor. So being a contractor puts her in a position where she cannot necessarily rely on particular benefits coming from Uber. It also means that she works by herself a lot. She, As she put it, uh, when I was asking her about her work, she said, I get the food, I deliver it. It's pretty straightforward. It's not (laughs) quite as complicated as you're making it out to be. But it's also very telling because that independence of work meant that Alex was one of the few workers that I spoke to when I asked them if they felt they'd experienced racial or gender discrimination. Alex said, no, not really, because again, I'm just picking up food. I'm dropping it off. I get a tip. It's, you know, it pretty much is what it is. But what I think is obscured by the uh, independence and um, aloneness of the work in the gig economy is that it means that people don't necessarily have comparative bases by which to consider how they are being treated relative to other others. And it means that when we look at the data about how the gig economy operates writ large, it still shows us that there are really large systemic differences that are present uh, that workers themselves may not see. So workers who are trying to get an Uber may find that they have longer wait times if their name seems to signal a certain racial or gender identity. Uh, Workers who are using an app to uh, rent out their homes will find that they uh, make less on their homes if it's in a predominantly Black part of town, or that if they appear to be predominantly, or if they appear to be Black, then they earn less returns for their home, even if we control for other aspects of home ownership. Those are things that you wouldn't necessarily see as a worker, but those are things that still show that racial inequality and discrimination is still present in gig work, even if it's not immediately apparent to those who are doing it. You know, and it's wild because for me, and I think about like the gig economy, right? Like, it's like, it feels everything feels so dystopian sometimes. And I do like dystopian future movies. That's like one of my favorite genres, right? But I'm starting to like it less when I'm looking <laughs> at stuff and I'm like, yo, wait, this is just like, uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> she was, no, this is not good. Uh, it's just like equilibrium or this is just like whatever. So I, the thing about gig work to me is like, to, for me, it's like if, if the account, if we don't, if wages do not, can, do not, if they continue to be flat as, as inflation continues to rise, that ultimately we're going to have to like, really like our lifestyles are going to change where like, we're going to pretty much just be working 24 seven right now. Mm-hmm. I sit in a privileged position. Like I have like no debt and like I have uh property and I have, and I've had like, I've, I've been afforded to have like six figure, a six figure income for like a majority of my professional career. And I have savings and I have a business. Like I have, there's things that I have, but like, I'm very well aware, Dr. Wingfield, that like my experience is not the norm. You know what I'm saying? Um, I'm very right. well aware that like a lot of people are literally working all the time, not because they're trying to save up for some really nice vacation or they just want some extra play money or that they want to buy another car, which are also which are also now super expensive, but literally just to pay their bills and like make it every two weeks. I wonder like. Do you think that like the average executive leader appreciates the lived experience of like just the average of their average employee and that like, hey, your employee probably has at least like one more job, if not two, and also has a gig thing? That's a really interesting question. And I will answer that to say this, that when I look at, if you look at the chapters on Alex, the worker in the gig economy, one of the things that I wanted to point out that many people may not be aware of is the way that many jobs function in our economy today is that there are a lot of people who are uh, not direct employees of the places where they work. There are a lot of cases of what uh, some economists refer to as a fissured workplace where people work for a temp agency or they work for an intermediary agency and then that agency contracts them out to another uh, job. So people who are in leadership roles as CEOs they may not even be aware of the experiences of many of the people who are associated with them because they have been able to shed labor costs by employing this model of a fissured workplace. I wrote a piece several years ago for the Harvard Business Review about how companies that were making a point to, and after Roe versus Wade was overturned, companies that were making a point to say, well, we're going to provide these benefits for our employees we're actually leaving out a number of workers associated with these firms because they hire fewer and fewer employees. So if I clean the buildings at uh, Amazon or Netflix, places that have very generous uh, parental leave benefits, those benefits do me no good (laughs) because I don't work directly for Amazon or Netflix. I work for a company that then contracts out my labor to clean these buildings and to do janitorial work or food services or what have you. So in that sense, I think there's a growing gap and an increasing chasm between people who are CEOs and their familiarity with the people who are working in ways that are connected to their companies, not just in terms of maybe not knowing what they are experiencing directly, but in terms of the fact that those people aren't even employees of their company anymore, even though the work that they do is indispensable. Yeah. So how do you keep up hope in all this? Because like, like you have like an intimate like engagement with like, the the topics with your writing about a lot of folks come up here they don't really know what they talk about dr wingfield they they got a ghost writer you know what i'm saying they ain't really ain't really <laughs> jokes y'all jokes uh kind of uh, i'm curious like how do you maintain how do you maintain hope for real like 
in light of this, right? Like in light of in light of um the intimate amount of just knowledge and understanding that you have of the subject matter. Um where does it come from for you? Yeah, that's a good question too. I mean, so part of the work that I do involves not just doing this research, but also trying to connect with companies and organizations that want to think more about these issues and to understand them them better. And that's a selective process, right? The companies that don't want to, the companies that don't care about these issues are not going to contact me and ask me to come talk with them about uh, my research and my findings, because if they don't care, there's no point in asking me to tell them what I've found. But I will say that I have connected with um, a somewhat surprising number of companies where I think in some cases, at least, there is a general, there's at least a genuine interest in wanting to do things differently and wanting to understand these issues better. I think, though, that there's a gap between the want and the knowledge of what works, right? So we haven't talked about this yet, but uh, one of the things that I talk about in the book is how much diversity, mandated diversity training is not useful. Uh, it does not work. And data has documented pretty consistently that it does not improve the numbers of black workers in leadership roles. Yet companies continue to keep doubling and tripling down on diversity training. It is almost ubiquitous in so many workplaces. I don't think that that's always out of malicious intent or because uh, people just feel like they're going to make this work. I think in many cases, company leaders uh, don't have time to sit down and read sociology and management journals. <laughs> And so they're not necessarily aware of the research that shows what does work and what does not work. And they're not necessarily up on the latest evidence and data. So I'll say that I think some of my optimism comes from connecting with enough people that I think there is genuine interest and there is genuine will out there and wanting to be part and wanting to work with and be part of initiatives that are motivated by wanting to see changes, even if people in leadership don't necessarily know how best to put those changes into practice. To that end, like, let's say you sit in a room, Dr. Wingfield, full of fortune, I'm going to say 2,000 CEOs, and they ask you, give me give me your three, Dr. Wingfield, look, we ain't got, we're here for a good time, we're not here for a long time, all right? Give us your three points of advice, how we can address and close these gray areas of the organizations. Where do we need to start? Yeah, that's a great question, too. So if I'm talking to CEOs, then I'd have a different response than if I were talking to just your average worker in a company. But with CEOs, I would say institute instead replace those mandated diversity trainings with diversity task forces. Those have been shown to work. And when you pull people from different levels of an organization together and task them with the issue of identifying where there are gaps and coming up with solutions to those gaps, Research shows that when people are motivated by being part of a solution, that actually does help to make concrete changes that improve these outcomes. I would also say to institute uh, formal mentoring programs that are open to everybody. Because again, research shows that when uh, mentoring programs are left to develop organically, then people often gravitate to those who are like them and that leaves black workers out in many cases. But when people are part of a formal mentoring program and they are explicitly matched with someone who's supposed to take responsibility for giving them guidance and support, leaders become familiar with often black workers that they never encountered before, that they didn't know anything about, and who are far more talented, motivated, and uh, strong candidates than they would have ever expected. And then thirdly, I would say to think about more broadly diversifying uh, outreach when it comes to hiring. 
Research has also shown that when organizations reach out to historically Black colleges and universities, they uncover a whole wealth of motivated, hungry young people who are amazing candidates for positions that were never on their radar because they just aren't necessarily in the existing networks and connections of hiring managers. So for CEOs, I would say that these are three relatively easy steps that you can take that, again, have been documented to work and to show results. Dr. Wingfield, look, I feel like we can keep on going. I'm excited always to connect with Black academics because y'all are like, like creme de la creme. Because I know it's 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 tough out there in that ivory. You got that. <laughs> and <laughs> and I just want to say thank you for those who are not familiar yet. If you haven't picked up this conversation, you know what I'm saying. Make sure that y'all check out Dr. Wingfield's book. All right, what is it called? One more time, Dr. Wingfield. What is it? You say it. Gray areas, how the way we work perpetuates racism and what we can do to fix it. Come on. You see that right there? Now, look, the link in the show notes, pull the car over to the side. You know what I'm saying? Put your blinker on. Make sure that your little one in the back is cool. Give Hand them the middle. I get it. I got two of them myself. Make sure they're calm. <laughs> then open up your phone. Click the link. You know what I'm saying? Buy Because it's, it's on everything, right? It's on your website. It's on Amazon. It's everywhere. Yeah, anywhere you can buy books, you can buy gray areas. Come on now, check out gray areas, y'all. And if y'all want to learn more about Dr. Wingfield and the work, the incredible work that she's doing and leading, make sure you check out her LinkedIn profile, which is also in the show notes. Dr. Wingfield, it's been a pleasure and an honor. Um, Before I let you go, any parting words or shout outs? Uh, I just would like to thank you again for having me on. This was such a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with me about my work. Of course, of course, of course, of course. Uh, Till next time, Kinsley, your friend of the show, please feel free to come back anytime. I look forward to keeping in touch. Sounds great. Thank you. Peace. And we're back. Yo, I want to thank our guests. I want to I want to say uh, much love to the entire living corporate team. Thank you for you. You. That's right. You listen to this right now. Driving your car or on the subway, or, you know what I'm saying, working out, or just listening late at night while you, you know what I'm saying, doing some work or something. Thank you for being a part of our Living Corporate community. I appreciate you. Make sure, if you haven't already, that you create a login on living-corporate.com where you can actually get all this content pushed to you based on the types of things that you want to engage and listen to. Make sure you actually go to living-corporate.com for jobs and uh, career advice and all types of just dope content that we got on there and that we're publishing every single day. All right. Till next time, this has been Zach. I'll catch you soon. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.